Hi guys, it's Alexis, and before we start this episode, I wanted to jump on and make a quick note to all of you about something Amanda and I are really excited about. We've connected with Steve Carberry at MedBridge, and we have um, the podcast is now an affiliate with MedBridge, which means that we're able to offer you guys a discount for a subscription to MedBridge if that's something that you don't already have. Um, you know, full disclosure, we do earn a commission off of this if you use our affiliate link, but the reason we're so excited about this is both of us used MedBridge. Um, so, and even beyond the OCS prep program, there's a lot of great content on there. Um, and there's some other things you can use. So I am going to have an episode with Steve that'll be coming out the week of Thanksgiving. So you can learn more about MedBridge if you're on the fence and you want to wait, that's fine. But I wanted to let you know that we are going to start linking relevant um, courses in the show notes to whatever it is we're talking about. So for example, today is going to be plantar fasciitis. And so you'll see some courses that are relevant to that in the show notes. Um, and there's also the link so that if you're interested in subscribing, if you're not already subscribed to MedBridge, you can get a huge discount. It's $175 off, which is awesome. We know how expensive it is to take the test. We know how expensive the material is for the test. So this is just a really cool way that, um, you know, we can help you guys out by saving you some money. So if you guys have questions about that, feel free to send us an email. But otherwise, um, we hope you enjoy today's episode. Thanks. Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. Okay, so tonight we're going to go over the heel pain and plantar fasciitis clinical practice guideline. Um, so we'll start first with talking about the prevalence. So plantar fasciitis um, is the most common foot condition treated by healthcare professionals. It occurs in approximately 2 million Americans each year and affects as much as 10% of the population over the course of a lifetime. Um, so plantar fasciitis, and we probably have all seen this in our clinical practice, it's prevalent in both athletic and non-athletic populations. Um, in athletic populations, it's a common injury reported by high school competitive and recreational distance runners. So the next section is they talk about um, pathoanatomical features. So clinicians should assess for impairments in muscles, tendons, and nerves, as well as the plantar fascia when a patient presents with heel pain. Increased plantar fascia thickness was found to be associated with symptoms and altered compressive properties of the fat pad in those with plantar heel pain. Changes in plantar fascia thickness were found to be positively associated with changes in pain level. In individuals with general foot and ankle related disability, pain related fear of movement was the strongest single contributor to disability. So they note that an area of future research may be fear avoidance behaviors and their role in disability in individuals with plantar fasciitis. So um, when you read through this CPG, you'll see that um, I'm, I'm going off of the 2014 update. There is a 2008. They do note in the 2014 um, the information from 2008 and then the evidence updates. So we're going to focus mostly on 2014 as we go through this. There might be a couple times where um, I'll reference 2008, but um, just so you guys know, I would probably focus on the 2014 because it does give you information from the 2008 as well. So um, the clinical course, the 2008 um, 
evidence notes that based on long-term follow-up data in a case series, clinical course for most patients was positive with 80% reporting resolution of symptoms within a 12-month period. Um, in 2014, the evidence update showed that heel pain and plantar fasciitis usually presents as a chronic condition with symptom duration greater than a year prior to seeking treatment. In two retrospective cohort studies involving 432 individuals diagnosed with chronic plantar fasciitis heel pain, the mean duration of symptoms ranged from 13.3 to 14.1 months. So, you know, what they're really talking about here is the fact that most people with this problem deal with it for a long time before they actually seek treatment. Um, but when they do seek treatment, they generally can see improvement and get better. So risk factors for um, plantar fasciitis. Um, in 2008, they noted that clinicians should consider limited ankle dorsiflexion range of motion and high body mass index in non-athletic populations as factors predisposing patients to the development of heel pain and plantar fasciitis. Um, in the 2014 update, they still note that um, clinicians should assess the presence of limited ankle dorsiflexion range of motion and high body mass index in non-athletic populations. They also talk about running and work-related weight-bearing activities, particularly under conditions with poor shock absorption as risk factors for the development of heel pain and plantar fasciitis. Um, so if you look at the evidence update, it's on page A8. They have, um, they talk about studies showing high arches and decreased ankle dorsiflexion as risk factors, as well as a positive association between hamstring tightness, leg length discrepancy, and plantar fasciitis. Um, so they talk about, too, that an area of future research may include the role of decreased intrinsic muscle strength in the development of heel pain and plantar fasciitis. So um, just in the update, they're really talking about quite a few new things that they're looking at just besides the dorsiflexion range of motion and um, body mass index. They're really considering whether arches play a factor, um, hamstring tightness, leg length discrepancy, um, and possibly even intrinsic muscle weakness in the foot. So um, things I think we should all probably look for in the future um, to see if there's more that comes out about that. So the next section is the diagnosis and classification. Um, I'm going to focus on the 2014 for this just because I think that probably makes a little bit more sense. So what they say is that physical therapists should diagnose the ICD category of plantar fasciitis and the associated ICF impairment-based category of heel pain. Um, so that's pain in the lower limb, radiating pain in a segment or region using the following history and physical examination findings. Plantar medial heel pain, most noticeable with initial steps after a period of inactivity, but also worse following prolonged weight bearing. Heel pain precipitated by a recent increase in weight bearing activity. Pain with palpation of the proximal insertion of the plantar fascia. A positive windlass te test. Negative tarsal tunnel tests. Limited active and passive talocrural joint dorsiflexion range of motion. Abnormal FPI score and high body mass index in non-athletic individuals. So I think that, um, and the FPI is the foot posture index. So um, they do talk about how um, there's a case control study, which 80 individuals with chronic plantar heel pain were matched with 80 control participate, participants. And the chronic plantar heel pain group had a more pronated foot posture than the controls 
when assessed with the foot posture index. Um, so they just talk about um, a little bit about that and how that might be a tool to be used in this population. Um, they also mentioned that a leg length discrepancy and limitations in hamstring flexibility were present in individuals diagnosed with plantar fasciitis. So, um, you know, I think in terms of like clinically, these are definitely things that I've seen pretty consistently in patients with plantar fasciitis. I mean, I don't know if you've had a similar um, experience. Yes, I, I think that it really kind of, like they say, it kind of falls on both extremes, either too much or not enough activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's pretty classic when patients come in with this. Right. And the, you know, they talk about that it's most noticeable with initial steps after a period of inactivity. Um, it's that first thing in the morning. It hurts so bad when I step out of bed first thing in the morning and then I start to move and it feels a little bit better, but I stand on my feet all day and then it feels worse. You know, it's those like beginning of the day, end of the day, increased symptoms is like pretty consistently what I tend to see with people. Um, and I think it's also important to know that they mentioned negative tarsal tunnel tests. So, you know, ruling out any sort of nerve impingement issue in the foot versus actual plantar fasciitis. Um, so yeah, so that is the diagnosis classification section. So then, um, we will get into the differential diagnosis portion next. So, um, again, we'll kind of focus on that 2014 recommendation. So what they say is that clinicians should assess for diagnostic classifications other than heel pain and plantar fasciitis, including spondyloarthritis, fat pad atrophy, and proximal plantar fibroma when the individual's reported activity limitations or impairments of body function and structure are not consistent with those presented in the diagnosis classification section of this guideline, or when the individual's symptoms are not resolving with interventions aimed at normalization of the individual's impairments of body function. Um, So again, and they've kind of talked about this you know, throughout the CPGs, if they're not getting better with what you would normally do, then you need to look, maybe it's something else, maybe it's not plantar fasciitis. And I do think that at times, as common as this is, sometimes it is incorrectly diagnosed either by, you know, most of the time by the patient, I can't tell you how many people I've had that come in and I have plantar fasciitis, but they're really not presenting, um, you know, with those classic signs and symptoms. Um, they just, their foot hurts. So they sort of assume plantar fasciitis because it is so common. I don't know if you've seen much of that. Yeah, I do. And I'll be honest with you. I think what I see plantar fasciitis and I agree with you, I think the patients like self-diagnose incorrectly mm-hmm. on this. I mean, I can't say I don't get incorrect referrals for it. Sometimes they do, sure. but I think actually a lot of these patients have a back origin when they're mm-hmm. misdiagnosed. I see a lot of patients with like a radiculopathy type of symptoms or a referred pain that into the like Achilles area in the feet, or maybe it started in the Achilles area four months ago, and now it's really in their foot. And so they self-diagnose with plantar mm-hmm. fasciitis, but then they'll tell me, well, sometimes it's both feet. Okay. We all know that plantar fasciitis typically does not occur bilaterally. So if someone's complaining mm-hmm. of like bilateral symptoms, they probably don't have plantar fasciitis. Like I always pretty much screen my back the back, the spine with, um, these patients, because it's often, I find that it changes a lot with like repeated movement testing and stuff. So I would encourage you to look further up the chain. Like we keep talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so they're, um, you know, talking about that a little bit. 
Um, and really, the, I think the difference between the two, like the 2014 and 20, 2008 recommendations is they're more specific about like what your alternate diagnoses could be in the 2014 recommendation. So they include that spondyloarthritis, fat pad atrophy, and proximal plantar fibroma. So just being aware that, you know, this can often be as common as it is, it can also be very commonly misdiagnosed. Um, so the next section is imaging. Uh, so what they talk about here is that um, diagnostic ultrasound may be used to assess plantar fascia thickness as a decrease in plantar fascia thickness has been associated with a reduction in heel pain symptoms. So the thicker the plantar fascia is, the more painful it typically is. Um, so you can, you know, diagnostic ultrasound can sort of show how thick that plantar fascia is. In a case-controlled perspective study, 30 individuals with plantar fascia pain who underwent a diagnostic ultrasound examination had a significantly thicker fascia in comparison to a control group of 33 individuals. Um, in addition, individuals with plantar fascia pain who reported an improvement in symptoms demonstrated a decrease in fascia thickness. Um, in a case series of 30 individuals diagnosed with plantar fasciitis, uh, 29 feet demonstrated a decrease in pain that was associated with a reduction in the thickness of the plantar fascia as de determined by diagnostic ultrasound. So that's the evidence update. Um, in the 2008 summary, they do note that imaging studies are typically not necessary for the diagnosis of plantar fasciitis. Um, it would be most useful to rule out other possible causes of heel pain or to establish a diagnosis of plantar fasciitis if the healthcare provider is in doubt. So, um, you know, it's not really something, I, I don't know that I've seen a ton of people have, um, you know, be referred for imaging when they're suspecting plantar fasciitis anyway, you know, sometimes they want to rule out stress fractures depending on the patient and other um, lifestyle reasons why they could have a stress fracture, but I don't typically see a ton of, even the diagnostic ultrasound, honestly, I don't think that I've seen a ton of that done clinically. I don't know if you see that I often. Don't. I, I mean, every now and then I'll see the ultrasound type of thing done, especially if it's more chronic or episodic mm -hmm. in nature and they, you know, they're on their third or fourth bout of it. I'll see them have that just to kind of confirm it. Sometimes I, patients come in and they've had an x-ray and, you know, maybe it'll mm -hmm. show a small spur. And I always educate yeah. them. I'm like, okay, but you're telling me your symptoms started a month ago. Like that spur didn't likely show up a month ago. So again, just trying to educate right. them that the imaging isn't always indicative of what is happening. And again, just educating them that right. it's not going to change the course of care. Plantar fasciitis is really a clinical diagnosis and it's really managed conservatively. I can't say I've ever seen one managed other than conservatively. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, Yep. Okay. So the next section we're going to talk about is the examination. So they start with talking about outcome measures. So I am going to touch on the 2008 recommendation because the 2014 isn't really, it's not super descriptive. So what they say is clinicians should use validated self-reported questionnaires, such as the foot function index, which is the FFI, the foot health status questionnaire, the FHSQ, or the foot and ankle abil ability measure, the FAAM or the FAM, before and after interventions intended to alleviate the physical impairments, functional limitations, and activity restrictions associated with heel pain, plantar fasciitis. Physical therapists should consider measuring change over time using the, the FAM, the FAAM, as it has been validated in a physical therapy practice setting. 
Um, so I know I personally have pretty much always used the fam. Have you used any of the other ones? Not necessarily. Um, I've, I'm a yeah. little bit familiar with the foot function index. I've heard of that one before, but I generally use the fam mm-hmm. for these. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in the evidence update, they note that a computer adaptive version of the lower extremity functional scale was found to have evidence of validity, reliability, and responsiveness using, um, 287 patients with foot and ankle related impairments. Seven items were found to produce an estimate of functional status on average and a change score of eight functional units represented a minimally clinically important improvement. So basically in the 2014 update, they kind of add that LEFS as a possibility um, as being a valid and reliable outcome measure to use. The MCID values for the FHSQ and visual analog scale for pain levels were defined in two interventional studies for patients with plantar fasciitis. So the MCID values for the FHSQ were as follows. The pain subscale was 13 points and 14 points, function subscale seven points, and footwear domain two points. The general foot health domain was not responsive to change in pain or function. The MCID on the visual analog scale was eight and nine for average pain and 19 for pain on the first step. They also said a review found that the FAM and the FHSQ to have evidence, have evidence for content validity, construct validity, reliability, and responsiveness for patients with plantar fasciitis in orthopedic physical therapy. So their kind of generalization for the 2014 recommendation was that clinicians should use the FAM, FHSQ, or the FFI and may use the computer adaptive version of the LEFS as validated self-reported questionnaires before and after interventions intended to alleviate the physical impairments, activity limitations, and participation restrictions associated with heel pain and plantar fasciitis. So essentially the overall takeaway from that is that these outcome measures are pretty good for plantar fasciitis. So something that you can use and feel pretty solid about with your patients on measuring their um, changes over time. So under the activity limitation measures, they note that clinicians should utilize easily reproducible performance-based measures of activity limitation and participation restriction measures to assess changes in the patient's level of function associated with heel pain and plantar fasciitis over the episode of care. So pretty straightforward with that. Um, And then they talk about physical impairment measures. So... um, The 2008 recommendation states that physical impairment measures of ankle dorsiflexion range of motion, dorsiflexion eversion test, windlass test, and longitudinal arch angle were recommended. And no grade was assigned for the strength of the evidence supporting that recommendation. In the evidence update, um, they state that treatment directed to reducing plantar fascia strain has been shown to be effective in reducing pain with initial steps and palpation of the proximal insertion of the plantar fascia. And that high body mass index and decreased ankle dorsiflexion range of motion were found to be risk factors for developing heel pain and plantar fasciitis, which we've touched on previously. Um, So the 2014 recommendation says that when evaluating a patient with heel pain and plantar fasciitis over an episode of care, assessment of impairment of body function should include measures of pain with initial steps after a period of inactivity and pain with palpation of the proximal insertion of the plantar fascia and may include measures of act active and passive ankle dorsiflexion range of motion and body mass index in non-athletic individuals. So I think all that's kind of 
some of it's a little repetitive throughout the CPG, um, but just the general themes that you can see with plantar fasciitis. So the next section that we're going to talk about are interventions. Um, and so this is kind of where we get into, you know, the bread and butter of, of what we do. So under manual therapy, they say that clinicians should use manual therapy consisting of joint and soft tissue mobilization procedures to treat relevant lower extremity joint mobility and calf flexibility deficits and to de decrease pain and improve function in individuals with heel pain and plantar fasciitis. Um, so that is, yeah, what they say about manual therapy. The next section is stretching. So they mentioned that clinicians should use um, plantar fasciitis specific and gastroc soleus stretching to provide short term. And by short term, they're noting that as one week to four months pain relief for individuals with heel pain and plantar fasciitis. They also say that heel pads may be used to increase the benefits of stretching. So um, there is under the stretching portion, um, an evidence update. And there was one study I wanted to note. They said that, um, Evidence from two systematic reviews suggests that stretching of the ankle and foot provides short-term clinical benefit for individuals with heel pain and plantar fasciitis. Um, so there were no, no studies that compared the effect of stretching to no stretching in individuals with plantar heel pain. Um, and the review found that the addition of a heel pad to gastroc soleus and plantar aponeurosis stretching could improve clinical outcomes and that plantar fascia stretching may be of more benefit than Achilles stretching. A more recent systematic review, and it was by Sweeting and colleagues, concluded that the main pain relieving benefits of stretching appear to occur within the first two weeks to four months, but could not support one method of stretching over another as being more effective for reducing pain or improving function. This review did include a study by Radford um, who noted adverse effects, which included increased pain in the heel, calf, and other areas of the lower limb in 10 of 46 percent participants within the calf stretching group. So I think, I mean, I don't know what's, what's been your general experience with stretching with these patients. Is that something that you typically, so typically um, prescribe right so away? It's typically something I give, although I will say it's not something mm -hmm. I overly emphasize. Like I don't make them do it 10 times a day. Like I have them try it right. because I find that a lot of these people, they are tight. Um, but they probably mm -hmm. have been that way for a long time. And whether or not it's a direct cause to their current symptoms, I always am kind of like, mm, jury's out on that. Um, I yeah. also, in these patients, I really compare side to side. If they're equally tight bilaterally, I really don't force stretching. I, you know, I encourage mm -hmm. them to do it, but I'll force it. Um, you know, yeah. if they have a huge deficit on their symptomatic side, you know, in their dorsiflexion range of motion with their knee extended, and that means their gastric's tight, then yeah, I'm definitely going to give them gastric stretching. I think I'm also a little bit more conservative when I stretch these people about how I do it. I don't typically have them go through these end range stretches. You know, I don't necessarily start with like the heel drop off the stretch, off the step, mm -hmm. because I find that it generally just irritates the plantar, like the plantar epineurosis area more so than gives them a calf stretch. You know, they're all they're doing is stretching through right. the arch at that point, And it's painful a lot of times. I start with a more neutral stretch or an unloaded stretch and see how they do with mm -hmm. that before I go into aggressive stretching. But I mean, clearly based on what you just said, um, the jury's kind of out on the evidence. I think that 
there's not necessarily a right or wrong. I think you just need to be really mindful of what you're doing and make sure you're really monitoring the response, you know, make sure you're taking measurements to see if it's helping. Right. Well, and then I, you know, I think it's one of those things too, where you clinically look at it and say, okay, are you, is your, was your calf tight? And that was, you know, pulling on the plantar fascia and led to you having this problem or is your calf guarding? Cause you're having this foot pain because your plantar fascia is so thick. Do you know right. what I mean? Like sometimes I think it's really hard to know, <clears throat> excuse me, what came first. Exactly. So, and I think that's probably why the evidence isn't so cut and right. dry because they, they're not really knowing, um, you know, are you tight because you hurt or do you hurt because you're tight? Exactly. So. Um, okay. So the next section they talk about is taping. So I'm going to talk about the, the 2014 recommendation with this. So they note that clinicians should use anti-pronation taping for immediate and by immediate, they mean up to three weeks pain reduction and improved function for individuals with heel pain and plantar fasciitis. Additionally, clinicians may use elastic therapeutic tape applied to the gastrocnemius and plantar fascia for short term. They note one week pain reduction. Um, do you do a lot of taping? I do initially, especially if they're really symptomatic. I do. I actually generally need to tape yeah. these folks um, because I don't want mm-hmm. them I do too. too much of a like stability. You know, I don't want it to be something they can't tolerate. Um, but I, if they're not super acute and they're not super painful, I try to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times with the tape, it's almost that thing too of like just giving that little bit of feedback exactly. and like you know, just feeling that on their foot sort of interrupts that pain and, and just kind of makes them feel better. It makes them feel like they're a little bit supported. And so I've had really good luck with taping with, with I will this say diagnosis when myself. I do tape them, I generally have really good results with it. Yes. I think mm-hmm. sometimes, yeah. and this is true to kind of taping anywhere, bracing anywhere. You just have to be careful that it doesn't become a dependency that, you know, I've had, like, I just had a guy another on go come in. He had retaped over the tape I put on. Like he, like <laughs> yeah. they over tape, you know what I mean? That they become so dependent uh-huh. on it that then they, they don't restore full function necessarily. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's that education on the first day of like what the tape is actually intended right. for. <laughs> um, okay. So the next portion and let's, we can definitely talk about this in terms of what it's intended for and for how long is foot orthoses. So um, clinicians should use foot orthoses, either prefabricated or custom fabricated slash fitted to support the medial longitudinal arch and cushion the heel in individuals with heel pain, plantar fasciitis to reduce pain and improve function for short term, two weeks to long term, one year periods, especially in those individuals who respond positively to anti-pronation taping techniques. Um, So one thing that I kind of noted going through and reading this was that I thought it was interesting that in the studies they discuss, they all utilize orthoses along with other treatments. So it wasn't like, um, you know, there was specific studies where like that was the only thing they did. So I think that makes it a little challenging to pull, you know, an opinion from, I don't know how you feel about that, but I think it's kind of hard to look at it and say, you know, well, what if they, what if it was really more this than that? Like there, there's just not a lot of right. like where they're only using orthoses. Right. So how do we really know? Right. Well, I think it's interesting because this is a level A evidence and I agree completely with what mm-hmm. you're saying. I think the one thing with orthoses that I generally see in the clinic is they get one PT visit. They see a clinician who's certified in custom orthotics, right? They get their custom orthotics. They go back for their fitting visit and they're good to go. And they do help, 
You know what mm-hmm. I mean? They help them to the point they can function. What I find is that they don't necessarily resolve it completely all the time. So generally, then you'll see those people six months after. And they're like, well, I paid for these orthotics. And then they're really frustrated. And it's, well, you probably needed something else with the orthotics. You know, you probably need a little yeah. stretching. You probably need a little manual work. You probably need a little foot intrinsic strengthening. Um, the other biggest thing with orthotics that I will just put a plug in here for is it's all dependent on patient compliance. Like, I think that's mm-hmm. one thing that we really struggle as physical therapists with, at least the therapists I know that do custom orthotics is getting the patient to be compliant. You know, they spend all this money on them. They have them custom fit. And then it's like, well, they only put them in one pair of shoes and it never leaves that pair of shoes. And, you know, it's maybe a pair of shoes they wear to work two days a week. And then the other day they don't wear them at all on the weekend or you know, I think you really have to, if you're going to do foot orthoses, you really have to educate the patient on exactly what the role of them is and their compliance with them. You know, if they're not wearing them, they're not going to help. Yeah. And the thing is, is if they go four days a week without them or even two, three days a week without them and then try to put them in and expect that to give them the cure in five minutes, it, it doesn't work that way. Right. And the other thing I'll say is all of this evidence, po- you know, points to the fact that these are not like when they say long-term, they mean up to a year. If you have a patient come in and they say, I've been wearing these orthotics for three years, that is not what they're made for. And I think that's another thing that often gets left out is it's not a, here's these orthotics. You should wear these for the rest of your life. If you really have foot dysfunction, we need to be addressing that foot dysfunction, not just putting people in orthotics forever, because what other part of the body would we give someone a brace and say, wear this for the rest of your life? We wouldn't, right? right? I mean, you're not going to give someone a back brace and tell them to wear it forever. You're going to rehab them. You're going to address their imbalances and their deficits. So why wouldn't we do that with the foot? So I I think, again, that's another point of education of, yeah, you know, these can be helpful for up to a year. Like, that's great, but you shouldn't need to wear them for the rest of your life. There's other things we can do. Um, So I thought that was interesting. And they also... I mean, they kind of, in these research articles, didn't really ever note a difference between custom and prefabricated orthotics either. So I think that's another point to make of like, if people think, well, you know, I can't afford the custom ones. Well, just go get some prefabricated and and at least see if that helps. Right. You don't have to have custom I very rarely refer people for custom orthotics unless I'm sure they're going to get some benefit from them. Whether they've had benefit from taping, Mm -hmm. which they mentioned in here, if they've benefited from from taping... They likely would benefit from orthotics, but I'll tell people, Hey, if you're on the fence, let's try a a semi-customer and over the counter. Um, and you know, sometimes I'll order a pair out of a catalog. That's maybe a little better than like a Dr. Scholl's or something from the drugstore, but, um, you know, I'm like, let's try that. That's a happy medium. And then you don't feel like you put all your eggs in that basket. But if they have not responded favorably to either pronation, anti-pronation taping or some kind of off the shelf, I hardly ever refer them for custom orthotics. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely makes sense. So, um, okay. So then the next thing they talk about it are night splints. They note that clinicians should prescribe a one to three month program of night splints for individuals with heel pain and plantar fasciitis who consistently have pain with the first step in the morning. Um, so again, like talking about timeline, right? One to three month program is what they're recommending here, not to wear night splints every night forever. Right. Well, and again, I, I, I think like your point with the orthotics, they have to be compliant with it. Wearing your night splints two nights out of the week is not going to make a difference. Right. And I have found that patients that are generally very compliant with night splints get really good benefit from them. But the problem is most patients mm-hmm. are not. But again, a night splint, 
you know, you can get them on Amazon for a nice one for 20, 30 bucks. They're not going to break the bank. Right. And so I try to encourage patients to at least try them, especially if it's an acute issue for them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I think, um, you know, just educating them too. it's, it's not forever wear them for a whole week straight and see if it's better. And if it is, then it's worth it for you to wear them for the one to three months versus, you know, it, it might, it's, of course, it's something different when you're sleeping, it's going to be hard to sleep in them initially, but you just have to encourage your patients and educate them on the importance of compliance. Um, okay, so the next thing they talk about are physical agents. So we'll go through this kind of quickly. So the electrotherapy, they say clinicians should use manual therapy, stretching, and foot orthoses instead of electrotherapeutic modalities to promote Im- intermediate and long-term one to six month improvement in clinical outcomes for individuals with heel pain and plantar fasciitis. Clinicians may or may not use iontophoresis to provide short-term two to four weeks pain relief and improved function. The next thing they talk about is low-level laser therapy. So clinicians may use low-level laser therapy to reduce pain and activity limitations in individuals with heel pain or plantar fasciitis. One randomized study was completed outside the review timeframe for the CPG, and that review failed to support the effectiveness of low-level laser therapy to address symptoms in individuals with plantar fasciitis. Um, I've never used low-level laser. I don't know if you have used that at all. (laughs) Okay. And then they talk about phonophoresis. So clinicians may use phonophoresis with ketoprofen gel to reduce pain in individuals with heel pain and plantar fasciitis. There was one small randomized study that supported the use of phonophoresis compared to ultrasound. Uh, But then they say that ultrasound, so the use of ultrasound cannot be recommended for individuals with heel pain or plantar fasciitis. So I think that kind of makes the study before that, that they note kind of you know, irrelevant because they're saying don't use ultrasound. So one supported phonophoresis compared to ultrasound, like that's not really giving us great information. But um, anyway, I, you know, I think in terms of ultrasound, unfortunately it was used for so long with heel pain and plantar fasciitis that I've had multiple patients who come in and, oh, I've had this before and they did that ultrasound and it made me all better. Well, for me personally, if a patient comes in and says that, I'm like, okay, we'll do ultrasound. It's basically just instrument-assisted soft tissue massage. <laughs> um, and so whatever. But in, in terms of the evidence, really, we shouldn't be doing ultrasound on these people. It's not not backed up. Well, and I think to your point that you just said, Alexis, is I've seen that quite a bit too. And I always come back to them and I'm like, I'm willing to use that as a tool in the toolbox, you know, because to some extent there may be yeah. a placebo there. And I can fully appreciate sure. that, but I always tell them, but you're back here to see me for the same thing because you don't have any oh, yeah. strategy yeah. to help you manage this on your own. And plantar fasciitis mm-hmm. is often one of those that can reoccur. Um, so right. I always try to encourage them like, yeah, it might've helped that time, but you know, we don't want to be back in the clinic five, six, seven times for the same thing because you don't have any way to manage this. And then sometimes that's like a light yep. bulb moment for them. So if you're getting a lot of patients that are requesting or you're getting a physician that's referring you a lot and they check ultrasound off on the box on the referral or whatever, you know, you're going to kind of have an uphill battle there. But I would encourage you to go from the angle of like more long-term benefit for your patient. Absolutely. Yep. And that's what I always tell them. I'm like, okay, we'll do this, but we're also going to do some things that I'm going to recommend. And they're usually happy with that, you know, and if they really feel like ultrasound is the thing that did it but they're willing to do the other t- treatment techniques that I give them fine. You know, I'm fine with that. But 
um anyway yes i agree and and just telling them you know obviously you're back here so we want to resolve this long term so you don't have to come back and see me so the next thing they talk about is footwear so to reduce pain in individuals with heel pain and plantar fasciitis uh, clinicians may prescribe one of two things so the first thing is a rocker bottom shoe construction in conjunction with the foot orthosis and the second thing is shoe rotation during the work week for those who stand for long periods. So I've never um, recommended a rocker bottom shoe myself, um, but I do think the shoe rotation or even just asking them like, when's the last time that you've got new shoes, looking at their shoes and um, you know, if they're wearing shoes that are supportive or not, um, if they're wearing the same shoes every day, you know, just, just investigating that a little bit. And I'm always very honest with people, like, for example, runners, like there are so many shoes out there. I'm not going to be able to tell them the exact brand and style they should wear, but I can give them the information on, okay, you should be in a stability shoe and we're going to progress you to something that's a little more neutral, but here's how that process looks. And then I'm going to refer them to, you know, a shoe store that is, reliable and has a good reputation for being able to fit people into, you know, I actually have a, a store here in town that I have a relationship with and they just gave me pads where I can write on there, like, this is the type of shoe I want and they can guide them to the brand and style based off that. So I don't know if you have any specific shoes that you really love um, or recommend. I can't say I often recommend a rocker bottom shoe. I will say, I think rocker bottom shoes mm -hmm. are gaining popularity. And so I yield a lot of yeah. questions from patients about them, especially more of my active folks. Um, but again, I encourage them. I tell them, I'm like, shoes are always changing on the market. Um, I'm like, you really have to yeah. try them on and stuff. But I too, like you, I have a few places in town here that I really like from my own personal experience. And just from sending other patients there that I've really tried to send them to certain places that I think will fit them in the appropriate shoe. And like you, I'll tell them like, you need a stability shoe or, you know, you need a more neutral shoe, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, I try to discourage people, especially some of my younger folks, like my adolescents that come in with like general foot pain um, away from some of the like all mesh shoes and stuff that are kind of popular oh, because yeah. they're just not getting enough stability. And I, Again, like you said, people just generally aren't replacing their shoes often enough. And sometimes I right. find that that is the bigger issue than what shoe they're in. Right. Well, and, you know, going back to the whole conversation of, um, you know, stability versus like a neutral shoe and, and things that aren't supportive. You know, the conversation that I always have, too, is like theoretically we all should be able to wear a shoe that doesn't have a ton of support but if your feet are really weak you've got calf weakness hip weakness whatever then you need that support so it's a process just like anything else like you can't go from wearing a stability shoe to like running barefoot and not expect to have problems right so um it's being able to you know educate the patient on if you want to be in a shoe that's more neutral this is the process and this is what it looks like and it takes time and it takes doing different exercises and and learning other strategies you can't just go from one extreme to the other and people usually understand that pretty right well, i think so. what happens sometimes when those people get to us that you know they're like well i already tried to change my shoes well they just went out and picked out a pair they liked they didn't necessarily consult mm -hmm. anyone about what type of shoe would be best for them exactly exactly so the next section is um, education and counseling for weight loss. So clinicians may provide education and counseling on exercise strategies to gain or maintain optimal lean body mass for individuals with heel pain and plantar fasciitis. 
Um, clinicians may also refer individuals to an appropriate healthcare practitioner to address nutrition issues. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. I think we both agree that, you know, it, it's a little bit of a challenging conversation at times. And sometimes you have to feel out the situation and the rapport that you have with the patient. But I do think it's a, an opportunity to say, you know, hey, maybe we need to refer you to a nutritionist because people just don't know what they don't know. And and I think that food and, and weight loss and all of that is just such a messy world. People start Googling things and you never know where they're going to land. So you, you have an opportunity here to, to make sure that your patients are getting to people who are reputable and know what they're talking about and can really help them in that. So the next section is therapeutic exercise and neuromuscular re-education. So they mentioned that clinicians may prescribe strengthening exercises and movement training for muscles that control pronation and attenuate forces during weight-bearing activities. Uh, under dry needling, they mentioned that the use of trigger point dry needling cannot be recommended for individuals with heel pain and plantar fasciitis. They do note one study outside of the time frame for the CPG that showed decreased pain and improved FHSQ score over time in the study. And the difference between groups was significant at six-week follow-up, but no other time point that they looked at. Um, and the difference in the FHSQ score was questionable. So I think that in terms of um, the research, and I don't know, I mean, I feel like there's just not, they're still finding a lot of things on dry needling and kind of looking at that. Um, but, you know, there's not a lot of, right. of you know, evidence pointing to this helping. So maybe this one study might have showed some improvement. I personally use dry needling with these patients, but I tend to focus on the calf area because dry needling to the foot can be really uncomfortable. Um, and usually, you know, it loosens up the calf a little bit. It gives them a little bit of relief. So I've had some good clinical success with it. Yeah, um, I think the thing with dry but, needling, and I would keep this in mind for those of you studying now, um, going forward, you know, as the updates of CPGs come out and stuff, I think that's one of the areas in, in terms of interventions that could potentially be changing. There's a lot of newer research coming yeah. out about dry needling, but just be aware of what the CPGs are recommending now in terms of studying for your test. That's my kind of plug yeah, on dry needling sure. because I think some of the clinical research coming out about it is good. It's favorable. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the necessarily those systematic reviews and stuff that we need to really put out in, in terms of clinical practice and change patterns isn't really there yet. Yep. Yep. So um, then they note a couple other interventions, things that are kind of outside of our scope. So um, extracorpial weight shockwave therapy they say does not appear to be more effective in reducing pain and st than stretching and therapeutic ultrasound. And then they talk about corticosteroid injections. So there's limited evidence supporting the effectiveness of corticosteroid injections as a first tier intervention for heel pain and plantar fasciitis. Um, I don't know. Do you see a lot of your people with this diagnosis end up getting corticosteroid no. injections? No, I really don't. I don't either. No, I think it's kind of a, Last Maybe once or twice I've to. seen it. I think a lot of physicians yeah. are hesitant to do it because they, I think it's kind of an uncomfortable area. And I think B, the question is, what kind of long-term benefit is this really going to provide? You know, I right. think there's question about like, well, does it really do much for them in the long term? Hmm, maybe. Yeah. And I feel like with, I mean, it's kind of the same thing as my like clinical experience with dry needling in the foot. There's so many nerves in your feet. Right. They're just so tender that it's like, are, are we really just irritating things even more by going in there with a needle or an injection versus like some other things that are a little more gentle and, and other right. ways to work through that. Right. So, um, so if you look on pages, a 18 and a 19 of this CPG, 
they kind of summarize everything a little bit. Um, so that's a good place to kind of look through and, and just see levels of evidence and, and all the different things that we discussed. But otherwise, um, I mean, pretty straightforward. There's obviously some themes that are repeated a few times through this. Uh, but for the most part, um, you know, I think it's pretty straightforward. Is there anything that you have to add? No, I don't think so. Okay, perfect. All right. So that kind of wraps up that CPG. Um, I believe we have one more. It'll be Achilles. Okay, perfect. All right. So we'll hit that one next time and we'll kind of go from there. Thank you. All right. Thank you.